Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Chronic vaginitis is a disease that affects women in so many ways. It's uncomfortable, it's embarrassing, and it affects their intimacy with their significant other. It's reported that 50% of the women by age 25 have had at least one vaginal yeast infection. Many women in the past were even reluctant to see their physician, typically a male gynecologist, about this problem. In my practice at Mitchell Medical Group, I have seen thousands of women who suffer with chronic vaginitis. Uh, I am not a gynecologist, but my approach is very different than most gynecologists, and I believe our success is due to a different way that we're treating these patients. My guest today, Dr. Jack Sobel, is a top expert on chronic vaginitis, and he too is not a gynecologist, which I was even surprised to find out. I think he would most associate himself as an infectious disease specialist, but after reviewing his resume, he has training in multiple medical fields. And in fact, Dr. Sobel and I have a few things in common, I realize. We both did medical work over in Israel. We both have infectious disease training, as I did it in my fellowship. And we both ended up dealing with a lot of cases of candida. But Dr. Sobel is a true candida specialist and researcher. He's done work at the NIH and other top institutions throughout his career. He has published a classic review paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on vaginitis back in 1997. And, and he's really one of the preeminent authorities. So I'm just really excited to a lot of things I want to ask him. I believe he's the chief of infectious diseases at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan. So with that introduction, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jack Sobel to the podcast. Good afternoon. Okay. It's nice to have you. Dr. Sobel, I enjoyed reading. There was an article about you in the Pfizer Discovery Series, and it was titled, Not a Mycologist, Just Candida. And for our listeners, a mycologist is a, a fungal expert. And it did reveal a lot to me about your interesting journey from a South African medical student and doing your residency there to postgraduate training in Israel, and then ultimately settling in the U.S. for more specialty training and research. So my question to you to start out is, are you just a professional student? Because I saw you did two years of pediatrics, one year of medicine, one year of nephrology, a year of cardiology, or is it you just have this insatiable curiosity about all the different fields of medicine? So that's where I want to start. I think the latter. I am a professional, definitely a paid student. <laughs> so you know, I'm not acquiring any tuition costs. Well, you're very fortunate because they, you could go broke that way. But it's really funny. The person who was the chief of my infectious disease department at St. Luke's Roosevelt, Columbia in New York many years ago was very interesting. He was very similar to you. I think till he landed in infectious disease, he had done a year of cardiology, a year of pulmonology, I guess till he realized, you know what the funny thing, what he used to say, I think you might laugh about this. He used to get, get a little frustrated with infectious disease and allergy because that was like the department we were head of. He goes, we don't have an organ that's ours, you know? And so, because you say, you know, the, obviously the pulmonary people have the lungs and the cardiologists have the heart, but in infectious disease or an allergy, it's all over the body. But I think that's what ultimately drew him to that field because like you, he was interested in the, more intellectual aspects of medicine. Am I, am I getting that right? So um, I don't know about it being intellectual, but it's certainly infectious diseases, as you point out, is we don't own an organ. Yes. We deal as clinical consultants. We have to talk and provide consultation on infections in every anatomical site. So you have to be able to talk to a neurosurgeon and a neuro neurologist. Right. And you can't simply talk about the infection. You have to be knowledgeable about neurology. You have to understand exactly what the neurosurgeon does. You can't discuss a shunt infection without understanding what a shunt is. Right. So you have to have a very broad, broad foundation of base. There is nothing 
that is more demanding in terms of having this broad base than being a specialist in infectious diseases. Yeah, and therefore, uh, what, is, what you sell is not a technique, it's not a procedure. You're selling your knowledge, and this is a broad-based cognitive function. Secondly, the, uh, in relation to that, uh, infectious diseases requires diagnosis. To be an, and uh, we live in an era where diagnosis has not become a preeminent requirement and demand of, me of medical specialists or physicians in general. Diagnosis in the 1950s and 60s and 70s was everything. And the whole education process was stood on its head when we, they left the diagnosis-oriented education of students and the way we, we, we taught residents and so on to say, no, 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 it's not so important you make the diagnosis. You have to, you have to move to a different system. It became the problem-oriented education system or POR, P-O-R-E, problem-oriented. And um, this move away from diagnosis was, a, in my opinion, was a terrible mistake in the whole education process. But you have to have a foundation of knowledge. And you have to, and the critical feature about infectious diseases is understanding causation. Now, causation is not a word we commonly use. We talk about causes. We don't talk about two terms, causation and causality. And both of them relate to the fact that just because you find a microorganism, a germ, a bacteria, a fungus, or virus in a patient doesn't mean it's the cause of the symptoms. Yeah. You have to establish that the organism that you've identified is actually the res responsible for the clinical syndrome you see. So that it takes diagnosis to a new level, and that's critical. Yeah, you know, you bring up a lot of really important points. I want to just share this with the listeners so they can really appreciate what you're saying. You know, I, I found in my medical training, which was very interesting because I did in Israel, as you, I know you were there for a while too. And I, I've noticed with a lot of even European doctors that train me in Israel and have trained me in the United States, they are much more focused on the physical exam and the history than I believe a lot of my American colleagues I think because our American colleagues, we kind of fell in love with the technology. And I'll never forget once, too, it was very interesting. One of my professors in Israel was, was telling a funny story. He was doing training at Mass General Hospital, and he was by the bedside listening so carefully to the patient's heart. And the other fellows that were American kind of were laughing. I'm like, well, what are you, you know, these are cardiologists. What, what are you busy looking, listening to the heart sound so carefully? Well, just get an echocardiogram. But people don't realize the subtleties that you can miss, miss with that. But I want to get back to something else because it's going to dive into our talk on vaginitis, which I know so many of the listeners and women want to know about. But also, why do you say in that Pfizer article, you're not a mycologist? Is that a bad thing? No, a mycologist has expertise in all fungi. Okay, you so may, you, don't, you, want be, you don't want to be limited to no, just no, say... No, no, I am a general infectious... The pathway I've taken is... Somewhat fortuitous, and it's every physician in their career comes to divisions in the path, and you decide whether you're going to go down path to the left or the right, and um, doors open and opportunities develop, and that's part of a medical career. Yeah. Anyway, my my strength, what what I bring to the field of vaginal disease. Is that, and I, I need to tell you how I came to work with. We're going to get to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lead you into that. Don't worry. I'm the, okay. But I want to get to the first thing first, because I know, again, a lot of listeners, I don't want them to get lost in this interesting conversation that I'm going to have with you because I'm, I'm very curious. But the $24,000 question, as we like to say in the United States, is why are some women more prone to these chronic vaginal yeast infections than others? I mean, what your gut sense over many years taking care of patients? What, what do you think it is? I have my opinions, but I want to hear yours. Well, firstly, there's no one single kind of vaginal infection. There are many. Well, let's say, with, let's, okay, let's start with candida yeast infections. Let's, let's start with that. You know, we'll work at other ones. But the chronic vaginal yeast infections, when you've seen, I mean, because again, you're seeing as an infectious disease doctor, you're, you're not the first line. They're going to the gynecologist or their family doctor. Mm -hmm. You're coming in when they're saying, gosh, I haven't gotten better after months of whatever my doctor gave me. What's your sense of why these women are different than others? Well, there are many explanations. 
So, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to tie me down to one single thing. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, no, I, no, I, I, I want to, as I said, I have, I can, I can tell you what I think it is, but my, you know, experience is a little bit different. So, than yours. Before I said, let's hear what you say. Oh, you want to hear what I say? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in my experience and in clinical practice, and I do immunology, infectious disease and allergy, I would say the overwhelming clearest cut history that I get on patients is that they've been on antibiotics for long courses. And this typically could be in a lot of, uh, we see this in America, a lot of young adults who are on antibiotics, broad spectrum, like doxycycline for acne in the women. I've seen with the women that have been on birth control pill for uh, many years, even when they're young. And honestly, I would say the, the last thing is obviously cortisone. And I would put it in that same category, stress. If they were under huge stresses, whether it was a loss of a family member, a uh, uh, divorce, you know, things that obviously I think raise their their stress hormones. These are the things that I'm seeing the most because they go to their gynecologist and we'll get into the therapeutics, but they get a dose or two of antifungals to treat this. And, you know, months later, they're not better. So that's my experience. So what, what's your experience? So um, vaginal candidiasis or candida vaginitis or yeast infections of the vagina, it's right. a genetic disorder. It is entirely a genetic disorder. You're born with the right genes. You never get a yeast infection. You're born with the wrong genes. You're going to be prone to yeast infections all your life. Period. Make it really? simple. I wow, that's that's mind blowing to me. I, I want to. I didn't see this in any of your writing, so I want to know why do you say that? Well, we've we've suspected a genetic basis for this for the last three or four decades. But there wasn't evidence. All we had was occasionally a family history. A mother would tell you about her two daughters or a patient would tell you about her two, two or three sisters, all of them are prone to yeast infections, one. So it was starts off with a family history, which is... Okay, well, genetics about. play a role in every condition. I, I would never no, disagree. No, 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 but let me be very more specific. Okay, sure. One. And number two, then afterwards, we, we the next evidence was long before we did HLA and then the real host genetic testing, the next evidence came with the blood group, um, the blood group abnormalities. But in the 1990s, the real breakthrough came when uh, uh, family studies, familial disorders were described of an entity called mucocutaneous candidiasis. Sure. Mm -hmm. And these, these were families where the women got oral and esophageal and vaginal and skin and nail infections due to candida. And you could do very good, thorough, detailed genetic studies, and it was totally clear. So that first gave us the insights that this was probably a genetic disorder. The difference between candida and hemophilia or sickle cell disease, that these sickle cell disease and all these other hemophilia genetic disorders are monogenic. You need one gene to change and one mutation to be handed down from, from generation to generation. Candida is polygenic. It's due to single nucleotide polymorphisms, very minor changes without a mutation in multiple genes, which together build up a susceptibility so that they're going to be women who go through life who never get a yeast infection ever. They take antibiotics. They do all the things you described earlier. They still never get a yeast infection. Yes, yeah, that, that can be true. I mean, those are the blessed ones. But, you know, they are blessed but, because they've got the right Yeah, gene. but but Dr. Sobel, the one thing I really I, I take, you know. Let me explain. Yeah, me okay, go ahead. So you're born with, a woman is born with a genetic susceptibility. Depending right. on the number of polymorphisms she's got, she's going to be high risk on the basis of genetics, she's going to be moderate, she's going to be right. low risk, or she's going to be no risk. Right. She goes through this, and the genetic susceptibility applies at two levels. One is the risk of becoming colonized, in other words, yeast reaching her vagina and remaining there. Right. One is there's a variable risk of that happen. If you don't have colonization, if you don't have yeast in the vagina, you can take all the antibiotics in the world. You're never going to get a yeast infection. You've got to be colonized, and the colonization is risk depends on receptors and the cells lining the vagina that determine whether you're going to be colonized or not. 
But being genetically predisposed is not enough. You then go to the next level of the cause, and that's called triggering mechanisms, triggers. And you are only talking about the triggers. You are not talking about the host susceptibility. And the triggers, the commonest trigger is antibiotics, and all antibiotics have this risk. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the more frequently and the more prolonged your course of antibiotics, the higher the risk. But if you speak to most women who really do have recurring episodes of candida vaginitis, yeast infections, they'll tell you they get attacks without taking antibiotics. They're getting episodes all the time. So So you separate triggers from underlying host susceptibility. And no question antibiotics are a very high risk factor. Then there are other risk factors that may do it. For example, in a small percentage of women, it may be a dietary factor. Women will tell you I'm very prone to yeast infections. When I have a binge with ice cream or refined sugars, I can precipitate, I know I'm going to get a yeast infection. Well, that makes sense to you as an infectious disease, right? Because the candida loves sugar, loves simple carbohydrates, right? That's exactly right. Yeast are very, very glucose and other hexoses dependent. You are correct. So that would be a second example of a trigger. A third, third mechanism is sexual activity. Frequency of intercourse, duration of intercourse, the type of thing, the friction involved in cre- cre- often creates an inflammatory, low-grade inflammatory process, which just facilitates the uh, transformation in a woman who is, has no symptoms, yet she has yeast in her vagina, that can trigger it. And you see it by when you take a careful history. So you'll see Mrs. Smith and she'll say to you, you know, my husband's been in the Marines. He's been away for the last six months. I've had no sexual activity. I haven't had a single attack of yeast infection. Mm. He came back and he's been home for 10 days and we've had a lot of sexual activity. And guess what? I knew within three or four days, I was going to get another yeast. Oh, I hope you're not leading to recommending that women will have celibacy. <laughs> it's going to be a problem. No, no, no. No one is recommending celibacy. Uh, okay. No. But so that's the trigger in that patient. In other women who are prone to yeast infections, sexual activity has no role. Uh-huh. So there are multiple triggers but you need the genetic system. Okay, and one other thing too, because I think you dispelled this in one of your articles, that so diabetes, would you also say that is a predisposition? Because I, th- I know in some of your articles, you kind of dispelled that. Yeah, but overwork, if you take 100 women who are having recurring episodes of yeast infection, maybe 2 or 3% will be diabetics. The other 98% will not oh, be not. Yeah, I know, that's what I see my practice. So we never, for example, if a woman is otherwise healthy, we never even bother measuring, or I never yeah. even bothered to measure a blood sugar. One other quick question too, the, the vaginal mucosa, should that have some candida? Isn't that normal? It's just not, an, you know, an overgrowth? I mean, there's, there should be so, some. There are some women who never become colonized, but 80 to 90% of the women will have yeast in the vagina when you culture it at least once. So we've done studies over many years. If we followed a group, a cohort of women for 10 years, 10 years, and we get a culture every month for 10 years. And some women are colonized all the time, and some women are colonized in year one and two, and then they're not colonized for the next two to three years. And from one month, it varies. So you get variable colonization depending on what's happening in their lives. Okay. But most women will eventually have some level of colonization. If you have the wrong genes, you'll be heavily colonized all the time. Let's talk about an organism, though, too, also. Do you find that, um, I mean, we know candida albicans is the predominant strain in many of these cases, but now we're hearing more about something called candida glabrata and a few other ones. Are you finding that to be an issue in some of the more difficult cases to resolve? Absolutely. So as you point out, there are about 150 species of candida, about 10 of them, Ten species are responsible, certainly five species are responsible for 98% of the infection, of which Canada albicans in North America, Canada, USA, Canada albicans is responsible for 90% of the infections. Glabrata is responsible for 3 to 5%. That's not the same all over the world. There are parts of the world, especially in the Middle East and Africa, where, it can, where Glabrata can be responsible for 30 to 40%. Oh, wow. 
Mm. But in North America, it's fortunately very, very low. But that's important because Glabrata is not as virulent. It's not as aggressive. It's not as dangerous as Albicans. And women are more commonly colonized with Glabrata without it actually causing symptoms. Oh, because I, I, I tended to get the, the sense that having Glabrata was more problematic because we'll get into this, it's resistant oh, it's, to... It's problematic in that it's more difficult to eradicate. I but see. it's not problem, uh, problematic in that most women who have Glabrata are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I find a, when an asymptomatic woman comes to see me and she's coming for a routine checkup or whatever it is, and I find Glabrata on culture, I never treat her because it's an organism that is doing her no harm. It's mm. not causing any symptoms. And it's a very difficult yeast to treat. I'm mm. not certainly not going to tell her, I've got to get rid of this Glabrata when it's not causing any symptoms. Right, right. And I can't guarantee that I can get rid of it. So what I'm doing is that I'm creating a patient problem, a I problem for the patient. And you that's know, you, not what we are trained yeah. to do. You know, again, with your background in infectious disease and mine in infectious disease and allergy, I'm curious too, because you seem to allude to it also in one of your papers that, you know, a lot of times the women that have what appears to be candida yeast vaginitis do not have any candida there. And so do you sense that it could be a hypersensitivity or like allergic type reaction that's going on there so, in, these, in some of these so, cases? So uh, you're actually hitting and getting close to one of the two or three critical questions is... Uh, the, what is what causes symptoms? Right. What actually well, that's what they <laughs> right. That's what people are worried about. Now, what, if it didn't what, bother what, them, they wouldn't be coming to a doctor. They'd stay no, home. <laughs> no. With a heavy yeast, why why are some women colonized without symptoms, and other women, when they're colonized, they get symptoms? And that's the difference between the yeast in an asymptomatic woman, and for the most part, yeast in the asymptomatic form, they only have yeast as what a stage called the blastospore, they have the, the single cell organism where it doesn't bud and it, does, it doesn't form hyphae, it doesn't form long filaments. That's the so, so when it's in what we call the commensal phase, colonization without symptoms, the yeast is not being virulent. And that's the very common scenario. And with evolution, women have developed over the centuries and hundreds and thousands of years, they tolerate, they tolerate yeast in the vagina together with all the other bacteria that are present in the vagina normally, which tend to be in our most frequently lactobacillus, but it's lactobacillus species. The, the whole of the genital tract is what is called immunologically a down-regulated system. In other words, because of the introduction with intercourse and ejaculation of foreign proteins and who knows what else, the, 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 the immune system of the, of the vagina is down-regulated to tolerate these foreign proteins and not to react. Otherwise, oh, there would be okay. symptoms yeah. developing every time somebody had intercourse. Yeah. It could interfere with pregnancy and so forth. Right. So, you, so you have a physiological tolerance that exists in the vagina that allows yeast in low number to colonize and not to cause symptoms. Okay. Women who have recurrent yeast infections getting an attack every couple of months right. are more prone to becoming colonized because of genetic factors and they don't tolerate. They've lost the tolerance. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that they no longer see the yeast in low numbers as simple organisms that are right, not right. causing any trouble. Well, it's almost like an allergen work. then, what you're saying. They're, they're, they're seeing so they hyper-react to right, it. Right. So women who are they're in a state of vaginal hyper-reaction, it's not a systemic reaction. No, no, localized, right. A right. localized reaction. Well, you know what I make the analogy sometimes? Because, you know, again, some gynecologists would turn their nose saying, well, this is not allergic, this is not hypersensitive, this is an infection. But what we see, and again, I see in my experience, like in dermatological cases, like when we have patients that have atopic dermatitis or eczema and they get staph on the skin, the staph epidermis, whatever, is not dangerous. But when there's heavy growth because of the broken skin, it causes an inflammation response. Is that what happens with these women with the chronic yeast vaginitis that whatever it is, whether it's low numbers or high numbers in these genetically predisposed women, they're making a chronic inflammatory response because I never saw using, yeah, no, I've never no, seen them use steroids 
I've never seen them use cortisone or anything like that in, in as a vaginal treatment, along with even an antifungal. Why? So, so firstly, you're using the word chronic. The yes. right word is recurrent. So Why? women have an acute <laughs> attack, and we call it sporadic, and they have okay. one or two attacks per year, and that's acceptable. Okay. To recurrent when they're having it from three, four attacks. Yeah, so this is what I'm saying. And, yeah. it, and it ends up, and if it's not diagnosed, and I want to get back to it, an important point you made, 10 minutes ago, okay, which is that two-thirds of the women who were referred to me with a letter from a gynecologist or whoever her primary care is to say, please, Dr. Sobel, see this patient with recurring yeast infections. And when I evaluate them, they don't have yeast. Okay. Well, I know we're going to get to that because that's like our next step, but okay. So you're, you're right. You're saying it was misdiagnosed. So the first thing is make a diagnosis. Well, okay. So wait, let's go to this because this, this is going to get to our next most important thing. Obviously, as I mentioned right at the introduction of the podcast, you know, this is a, a, a somewhat embarrassing condition for women, and they're sometimes reluctant to go to male doctors. Fortunately, there are a lot more women doctors and gynecologists now. So a lot of women self-diagnose, and they can go over the counter and get things like monostat or whatever and try to treat themselves. They hopefully, you know, like, like somebody would if they had a little rash, they'd get a little cream, a little cortisone cream and say, oh, I hope this goes away. I don't want to have to make a big deal and go to the doctor. But that's not the case in these recurrent cases. So I want to ask you, and I, as I said, I've reviewed your articles, which I've, I've seen many of them, which I really enjoyed. But you also go through, again, some of these papers are older, you know, all of the classic ways to differentiate the different causes of vaginitis, the pH, obviously something called, the, I think it's the Amen test and, and other things. But what I like when I, when I see a patient, when they come from their gynecologist, I request that they do the PCR new swab, where I get the whole differential of the different things. Do you agree with me on that? Do you feel that's a very helpful way of knowing specifically the organism? Or do you rely on some other tests that I should know about? So I never give short answers. I noticed that, which is okay. <laughs> we have time. We're not on a, you know, we have to go to commercial break like the TV. Go ahead. So the, the answer is the women, when they go to a doctor, a gynecologist, infectious disease specialists, they deserve an answer and they deserve a diagnosis. Agreed. And self-diagnosis by women is unreliable. Yes. Very unreliable. There are occasionally the occasional women who are very good at self-diagnosis, but it's not the majority. One. Two, you can't make a diagnosis if you're a physician over the phone. Correct. Never. Not in this case, you can't. <laughs> because the symptoms are not specific. So, you know, Mrs. Smith, who is prone to yeast infections, goes, goes home and her husband says, you know, let's, let's go out tonight and they go to a place and there's a hot tub. And the hot tub, they sit and they get into their bathing suits or perhaps less and they're sitting in the hot tub. And if the hot tub was very effectively cleaned with chemicals that right. day, a lot of irritating they did not want to get anything. So she, they sit down, they're quietly, they quietly, they do what they, they, you know, they have a good, um, good time, drinks and otherwise. The next morning she wakes up, she's got itching and rawness and soreness and irritation. Okay. She thinks she's got a yeast infection. Right. Now she could have a yeast infection, but she could, but what very often she's had an, an, an allergic reaction or a hypersensitivity or contact dermatitis effect in the genital area as a result of exposure to bromides, chlorine, right. or whatever they've That's used a good to point. clean the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the answer is the symptoms are the same. Right, right. That's a good, really good point. So the doctor has to make the diagnosis. You had me on the edge of my seat on that one. Yeah, I was really interested if that was going to be like a uh, hot tub vaginitis versus something no, the, else. No, no, this is purely a contact dermatitis, yeah. valvitis, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. So the doctor owes it to the patient, and the patient should always ask the doctor, what kind of vaginitis do I have, and how sure are you of the diagnosis, and what, if, what diagnosis well, do so you have? Well, so how do you become sure? I mean, that's what I'm asking you. I'm putting sure. you as a so, said. So in a, but what in a test diet. do you do? Do you, do you actually examine the women? Do you do a gynecological exam? Of course. Okay, I'm just asking. No, I don't know. A lot of infectious disease doctors don't uh, No, no, no. Let me tell you, as a, general, as a general rule, infectious disease doctors know nothing about the vagina. Yeah, right. That's supposed to be the gynecologist's domain. <laughs> so if a woman is having recurring vaginal infections, don't send it to an infectious disease specialist. Because? 
Because I know nothing about the vagina. I'm telling okay. You. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, present company excluded, but okay, right. But yeah, number one. Number two, they don't. Okay. But they feel like this out their domain, yeah. So you do, the first thing is you do a physical exam. You take a careful history, always. You, take a, you do a physical exam, always. Remember, you can't, but the gynecologist or the doctor can't just look at the woman and do a speculum exam and say, oh, Mrs. Smith, you obviously have da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Not even God can do that. You have to confirm the diagnosis. Well, so are you saying also visual? I really want to get specific Visually on this. Visual is not reliable. No, 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 I know. But I'm saying, because you said you're doing the exam. I would assume that a lot of times doctors, you know, like an infectious disease doctor would rely on the report from the gynecologist. You're saying no. you, obviously you do your history, physical exam, you actually... Do Always. the pelvic exam, and Always. will you? And and what test would you send out for? Would you send out for the new swab? Do you send sure. out for multiple cultures? Sure. So I, I want to know exactly what you do. Now, what what I do and what you do is going to be totally different. Why? Because <laughs> I'm a, from you. Because I'm I'm a skilled microscopist. Okay, right. Okay. And okay, if you so don't know how to do skilled microscopy, well, well that's a dying art. I have to. Say, I hate to say correct. You know, very few gynecologists and probably even infectious diseases are busy doing uh, a potassium hydroxide test at the bedside. So that's why. Okay, but anyway, so but no, I, re- I rely on traditional methods. Okay, I measure the vaginal pH, and the, in vaginal yeast infections, the pH is normal. In contrast, if the pH is elevated, you've got a very likely bacterial cause or trichomonas or something else. Right. So if you don't, in my clinic, listen carefully. I am. In my clinic, when we run out of pH paper, I send the patients home. I close the doors. I negotiate with them to pay for their, for their travel ex- and parking expenses, and we close the clinic. Oh, wow. Because if you don't have pH paper, you're incompetent. Well, but why not the new swab test, which would give you okay, all no, no, that well, information? Well, I know it's more expensive, but... So now I'll, I'll, come to, I'll come to that. Okay, all right. Now, using my traditional methods, I don't need the new swab. and the, But there's no question, I do a culture on every patient. Okay. Which takes 10 seconds, which costs about 10 to $12. Insurance okay. companies pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. So with my old methods microscopy, pH, et cetera, and culture, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly adequate. I don't need the new swab. However, okay. I'm a realist. I was about to say, I you, seem a, little, you seem a little bit entrenched. It's like, you know, it's like the old school doctors. Like, I'm not saying it's bad, like, to obviously plug your stethoscope no, no, and do no, other no. things, but no. technology is helpful. I mean, it's... No, no, uh, no, no. I, I understand the reality of the situation. Doctors don't have microscopes. They right. don't have time, right. et cetera, et cetera. If you don't do what I do, yes. then send out a molecular test. Okay. And the new swab is one of the many molecular tests. Okay. And okay. they're all the same. Okay. And they're all very good and they're all very reliable. The only problem is you don't get an answer now. I give the patients an answer within a matter of minutes Otherwise, you know, unless I'm waiting for a culture, but invariably the molecular tests and secondly, the molecular tests are very expensive. The other thing, by the way, when you're doing microscopy and you're, and you're in a clinic and you, and you have, you set the bar high in terms of exam, in terms of competence and quality. Yeah. While I'm looking down that microscope and I have always have residents and trainees with me. And we have a binocular and a multinocular, mm-hmm. um, multiocular microscope. Then I, I take them through the processes and we look at the smear and we look at the bacteria and we look at the white cells and so on and so forth. It's so it's an opportunity to explain to the residents what's going on so they understand causation. Yes, no, they're very Sorry. lucky. They're lucky okay. to have a good teacher like you. Okay, but you're right. In your situation, yeah, do the molecular test. Okay. All right, let's go on to something else too, which I think obviously the listeners really are on the edge of their seats about because again, when they're suffering, they want to know what's going to help them. And as you mentioned in some of your articles, which, and I know from infectious disease people in general feel like the azole drugs were, were game changers in, uh, in treating fungal infections of all sorts, but especially 
candidates. So can you explain just to the listeners so they know, I mean, just give them a little background. I mean, what I remember in my training, as I said, I did internal medicine and then infectious disease and allergy. I trained during the AIDS epidemic. We, when we had systemic fungal infections, we used something called amphotericin, which had the nickname, as you probably know, amphoterrible. I mean, it had just terrible side effects. It, I felt it was a very dangerous drug to use. You had to be super careful. When did these other drugs come along and, you know, what, what did you see as them making a huge difference, you know, for localized fungal infections? So, so in the 1960s, what came out now, if you went to see, an, a, a, in the 1960s, when you went to see a competent practitioner, you were given gentian violet in the 1960s. Mm-hmm, that's right. Or you were, and the first one. That's that the purple, widely, purple paint. The first, first most widely used agent was some, something called nystatin. Yes. And statin was available either orally, which didn't work because it didn't ever leave the bell. Right. And, uh, and more, most importantly, they developed these nice statin suppositories, which are very good. But you've got to take them for every day and you've got to take for 7 to 14 days. Fortunately, by the 1970s, along came the topical azoles. The topical azoles. Oh, topical. Right. They came first. They came before the oral, like ketoconazole? Oh, yes. uh, that was when... Clotrimazole and Myconazole oh, okay, and Econazole. Okay. These okay. were the topical agents, and they were very good. And initially they came as 14-day therapies, and as they increased the concentrations, they went to 14 to 7 to 5 to 3 to 1. But they're very good. And now they, you know, they're not available by prescription. You can only get them over the counter, so right. patients can buy them. But they work very well. There's no harm. Along came, in the 1980s, the first oral azole. So now a woman didn't have to use a suppository. And the first one was something called ketoconazole. And ketoconazole, unfortunately, is not used today because of because of toxicity. The liver function. Is it, is it really that like a concerning medication? No, it's it's it? not. It's infrequent, but it's, you know, we have things better than ketoconazole today. Okay. By the 1990s, a lot came a drug called fluconazole, which is known as diflucan. And fluconazole, diflucan, was, was an incredible step forward because it was a safe drug, never, never given FDA approval for use in pregnancy, but outside of pregnancy, never given that green line for pregnancy, fluconazole. Fortunately, and I'm pleased to say I've never used it in pregnancy. But I believe it's the only FDA-approved medication for yeast infections. Is that correct? I mean, I think... Well, there were, only three, there were three oral agents. Ketoconazole, not available, was never approved yeah. in this country. So the other one is a drug called itraconazole, right. which is available for nail and aspergillus and other infections, but never got FDA approval in this country. But it's also called Sporanox, widely used throughout the world. It is not used, as- but it is also used. Let's say if someone felt like they were resistant, if they were not, you know, if they were not responding to, to fluconazole, diflucan, would you try one of those other ones? No. Now, if a patient, if a, two possible, if a patient is, got a, you know, is not responding to, to fluconazole, there are only two possibilities. The one is that the yeast is resistant to fluconazole, right? Which is fortunately very rare, but some, but glabrata and some of these uncommon species may are not as susceptible and sensitive. Mm-hmm. The second reason why a patient doesn't get better when you give them fluconazole is that they don't have a yeast infection. Okay, and that's the by far the commonest. So when I well, that's a, but let, wait, wait. Let's get back to something a little bit tricky because this is, we're talking a little tricky land here. And I'll tell you why. Because let's say you're seeing this patient coming, or I'm seeing this patient coming back with chronic recurrent vaginitis, and let's just say in my hands versus yours, we we send out the polymerase chain testing, and sometimes they come back negative. Some, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see, you know, some Canda albicans. Let's say, let's say you don't see a trichomonas or something else too. Now you're left with the patient suffering. Could it be a, you know, again, as you mentioned, a, some type of hypersensitivity reaction that you, you have to do something. So what do you know? They, they'll tell you, I've been on Diflucan 10 times and I'm not better. And you're not finding a, not something bacterial vaginosis. You're not finding trichomonas. You're not finding an STD. So what, what would you do, doctors? Let's say I call you up, Dr. Sobel, I got a tough case here. I want your opinion. You're the smartest doctor in the room right now. What else would you ask about or what else could we try to help this patient that's suffering? 
I know the hypothetical patients. So what you need is, I'll go back to my opening statement. What you need is a diagnosis. Okay. And if you don't have a diagnosis, you do what is the result of not having a diagnosis. You get involved in medicine, which is called empiricism. So I am the... (laughs) I am the enemy of empiricism. I abhor empiric decisions. Empiric is when you say, you know, it may be this and it may be that. Let's try a little bit of this. Well, you know, now I know you're... It's like making chicken soup. No, you know something, but now you totally revealed who you are in a good way. You're an infectious disease doctor. They They want proof. But, you know, I will have to say, unfortunately, in medicine, outside of the laboratory... A lot of times we're dealing in a little bit of empiricism, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we have customers that really want the job done. And as you know that, I mean, we're laughing about this, but it, it is kind of true. And I know that, as I said, because I've trained with infectious disease people and I respect so much how they, you know, they see so much how people are treated without a proper diagnosis, without getting a simple culture that can make all the difference. But again, sometimes, you know, we are living you know, in a complicated world where patients are suffering or in pain. And, and I have to do this in other areas of my practice where I have to empirically treat because fortunately, sometimes, you know, with some God-given help, I'm right and they get better. So anyway, let me now, go. I just wanted to make an important statement. Okay. If, if a patient's symptoms are due to yeast, yes, you will find the yeast. Okay. So hang on a second. So you'll either you may not find it over the microscope, and you may not find it, but you'll find it either by culture or by okay. PCR. Okay. If you don't, if you've done it, and you know, you can always have what we call a sampling error once. So you've taken a swab and the test it comes back negative, and you repeat the test the same day, six hours later, with a swab, okay. and you and you do a more thorough sample collection it suddenly becomes positive. The patient didn't just become positive. Right. It's just that you had a sampling error. But okay. if you've taken right. a happen. test and you've done it twice and both tests are negative for yeast, stop thinking about yeast. Okay, stop okay. Well, look, but, okay. For yeast. Okay, but let's stay on this. And this is the kind of cases that I see. I think you've written about them. I, I see a patient that's been to the gynecologist. They've gotten five different doses of Diflucan. They definitely are positive on PCR or culture candidate. How long would you treat that patient? I mean, I've seen your articles, you know, you also, you mentioned about a three to six month suppressive therapy regimen where, cause you know, most of the gynecologists are very afraid of that. They are like, you know, they will not give more than two or three pills of Diflucan yeah. at all. And I, I will mention this. I did a podcast over a year ago with Dr. Marjorie Crandell. She's a PhD. Oh, I know. I know, know Marjorie, right? Marjorie she, uh, she's well. a tough, crusty research woman. I, and I give her a lot of credit and you know, but she's a big believer that there's a lot of undertreatment going on. So I want to hear it from you. What, you know, because I've seen you written articles about this. Do you, you know, you'll put people on a six-month regimen of uh, one of the antifungals to, to try to uh, get people under control? Tell me and tell my listeners. Okay. So the bottom line is this, that um, having established now that the patient we're seeing with the current disease has the yeast. Yes. The, the, the next question you're going to ask yourself is, is this Canada Albicans? Is it non-Albicans Canada? Right. And, and you've tried it. And if the patient, as I said before, if it's Canada Albicans and she's not getting better, it's one of two reasons. She's either got another diagnosis, even she could have a okay. second diagnosis. Okay. She okay. can have two things going on. Right. Uh, or the yeast are not causing her symptoms or B, it's resistance. Wait, so I want to say a C. I want to say a C, and I'm going to have to challenge you because I want to learn for myself too. You know, the C choice would be, is there some other factor? And I want to ask this because I've had women ask me, you know, can I be getting candidate from my partner? And in, in the early, I just want you to listen for a second before you discount it. In the early days, I would have said, no, you know, this is, this is the host. This is your immune response. But, you know, there are today a lot of men that are on immunosuppressive drugs for a lot of rheumatological conditions. And I've seen a couple of cases where the women swear, and it's very frustrating in a very difficult situation where they're saying, like, I didn't have this problem till I had this particular partner. So these are questions that I'm telling you I see. And 
the other thing I see also, and again, that's why, you know, I have you on because I want, I'm curious myself. I see a lot of people with bowel issues that they have chronic constipation or irritable bowel. And I want to bring this up because I just had on Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard, who's like really a world expert on gluten sensitivity and leaky gut. And I like to explain to the patients because I've seen so many of these cases where, you know, candida is also supposed to be, is in the bowel. And because of these bowel issues, that they may get seeding from the gut to the vaginal area. Do you have a disagreement with that, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you, you know, you, you've covered a lot of areas. So okay. the first thing is, is there such thing as sexual transmission of candida? Mm-hmm. That was your first question. I guess, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the answer is minimal. Mm-hmm. Okay. As opposed to bacterial vaginosis, which is very much sexual transmission, and that's part of the reason is candida doesn't form a biofilm, whereas bacteria frequently forms by biofilm. You don't find candida in the urethra of male partners. It doesn't mean that her attacks are not precipitated by having intercourse, but it's not because they're transmitting the yeast. It's because of the physical components of the, of the, okay. of the intercourse in their own right. One. All right. What about the bowel? Well, of the, the, yeast, of the, the yeast that are present in the vagina ultimately have all come from the gastrointestinal. They do, right. Of mm-hmm. course. Okay. So how about, how about like what I like to try with patients is I like giving them oral nystatin, which I feel is very underused by gynecologists, to decrease the load inside the GI tract. What's your thoughts on that? It doesn't work. Why? Because A lot of people the, feel it does, but why, why no, do you no, say? No, 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 because I can tell you there have been some very good control studies where they gave placebo or nystatin to women carrying cash, uh, yeast yeah. and thing, and there was no difference. So the problem, the problem isn't that the gut is the reservoir. The reservoir is the vagina. How's so it getting, how's it so getting I there? To, I want you to show me one study, one, just one, okay. where giving nystatin alone re- prevented recurrent candida vaginitis. You know, I would have to check, but I, I had also somebody on who knows you, uh, I was aware of you, Dr. George Croker. And again, 40 years he practiced in Wisconsin, seeing the, these difficult cases and using Nystatin. Uh, and he's published also a, a chapter in a textbook. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know George. Do you know him? This is part of the East Connection issue. Yeah. I, I think it's bogus. I yeah, think it's well, yeah, and I think I, there's no such thing as a hypersensitivity gut syndrome. Okay, mm-hmm. so I've anyway, all right. I, I, I had a feeling. I, th- I think right. I had a feeling you, you were going to feel that way. So yeah. we'll, we could have, we could we could agree to disagree. But uh, I, I wanted to at least ask you on that because you know one of the things we we do really know about health in general that the microbiome, which is from the gut. And Dr. Fasano, who's world class, I always tell him, I think he's going to win the Nobel Prize for discovering uh, zonulin, which explains why the gut cells open up and then that seeds to other areas of the body where inflammation occurs. I mean, I, I don't even get into this because it's not for this podcast, but I've seen so many even skin disorders that emanate from the gut, you no know, that we the gut, like urticaria. But anyway, okay. All right. So you still didn't answer for me, though. I do want to know so, how long would you treat a woman that has? documented candida vaginitis, I mean, roughly, you know, just give me an idea. Would you, I mean, do you think gynecologists, if they say to you, that's ridiculous treating them for three to six months. I've seen you wrote articles about no, no, that. No, 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 no. The fundamental problem is when you treat a patient, you're treating under two, two entirely different circumstances. You're treating a patient who's symptomatic now. She's right. got acute symptomatic symptoms. Right. She's got redness. She's got swelling. She's got irritation and burning. She's sore, right. et cetera. Right. You, you find an, you know, an abnormal discharge and you confirm right. it's yeast. This is acute. The symptoms, this picture is the same in a woman having one attack per year, one attack every 10 years, or she's having an attack every month. Right. So when they are presented with acute disease, this picture's the same. The only difference is the Mrs. Smith who's having one attack a year or one attack every five years, once you've treated her for a few days with diflucan or tropical medications and it's the same, she's going to be normal for the next 11 months. 
the women who have recurrent yeast infections, yes. and, they're, and they're, you know, they're between 7 and 9% of the population, so there are millions of women with recurrent yeast infections, even though you treat her acute symptoms now with treatment, she comes back in two weeks' time and she says, I'm yeah. feeling great. You know that over the next couple of months, she's going to come back with symptoms again and the, right. the yeast okay. will be back. And okay. it's the same yeast. It's the same okay. species. Right. You've shown that in studies, so, right. So now, okay. so now your, your, your problem isn't to control the acute symptoms. You're giving her medication to prevent recurrence. So your maintenance regimen that I've advocated that was published in 2000, first in 1987 with ketoconazole and later on in 2004 with fluconazole, these maintenance regimens are there to prevent recurrence. And they're not right. meant to cure her. They don't cure you. No, it's, How, it's you, don't, you know why you don't cure her? You can't cure her genes with fluconazole. Okay, so what's, let's stay with those. So you're saying, so you, you are saying you would do essentially suppressive therapy. Do yes. you give them diflucan once a week? Do you give One, them I give them day? once a week. Why do I give it once a week and not once a, once a day? Because diflucans, this is where the, the infectious disease, pharmacokinetics and all those sort of things. She's got concentrations in the vagina of the fluconazole after a single tablet of 150 milligrams. She can maintain a therapeutic concentration above the what we call the MIC of the organism right. for at least 96 hours. That's already four days. So, so you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it twice a week, whatever, just to keep some that? some occasional occasional yeah. patients do need twice a week. Do you need to lower their dose if you're giving to the chronic? Because typically, diflucan can be given 150 milligrams. 100. Do you no, go to 150 milligrams is pretty low. Once a, you yeah. know, once a okay. week. It's a, it's such a low dose okay. that it's remarkably safe. All right, but all the me... concerns about drug interactions are really when you're taking four to six hundred milligrams per day. Yeah, you're taking 100 to 150 milligrams per week. You yeah. don't run into trouble. This is a, its success is a function of its ability to penetrate the vagina. One, its ability to be safe and its long, longer half-life. The longer the half-life of a drug, the less frequently you have to give it. Right. So, so once a week so, is enough. Yeah, let me ask you too. There are some newer antifungals which are astronomically expensive, scary expensive, like $5,000 a month, like postconazole, vorconazole. Oh. Do you ever find the need to use those? I mean, you are infectious disease. I mean, do you see? Right. That's an easy question. No oh, good, finally. Is, we got to an easy one. <laughs> the answer is never. You never use those? Never. Firstly, Why? <laughs> the, but firstly, these drugs don't get into the vagina. Okay, so, okay. That's a shock. So, which is the most potent drug against the yeast? And you started off mentioning it 40 minutes ago. Amphotericin. Oh, amphotericin. So, why yes. don't we use amphotericin? Oh, gosh, it's so toxic. Why? Because amphotericin B doesn't work at pH 4. Oh, and what okay. is the pH of the vagina? Okay. 4. So, so when you use amphotericin, which we'd like to use because we can have it made up by, by a compounding pharmacy, it doesn't work well at low pH. And is that why you, I think you mentioned your article is flucytosine. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Flucytosine is very good and particularly good at a low pH. The problem is you, it's just not commercially available. Yeah, you want to go into wrong. business, open up a business and okay. make your own flucytosine. Well, what about also boric acid? I know that's another topical one. Is that, like, I mean, do you, would that be a regimen for you giving somebody diflucan once a, once a week or twice a week and then using oh. something, so, so, especially so, before intercourse or something like that? I mean, okay. So I just want to emphasize the principle. There's treatment for an acute episode, which is 48 to 72, you know, for yes. the thing. And then there's maintenance regimen. Oh, wait, wait. So let's stay with the acute episode, because typically the, the gynecologist and myself, they're giving three diflucan. Is that usually adequate or is one? I mean, I know. For, I know for, for, for an acute attack. Acute episode, yeah. What are you? Three, three tablets, but never daily. You never get right, every third day. Daily. Mm -hmm. Every 72 hours. Why? Because of the half-life. Yeah, okay. Right. So that's, that's my risk. 
So, so and, I'm glad listeners should know this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you never take you never take daily. You take it every seventy two hours, and you take three tablets, and that will control every attack or symptom, acute attack of candida vaginitis, unless the the organism is resistant. And if it's resistant, you do a lab test to prove it's resistant. Very easily obtained. But when you use a maintenance regimen, and my maintenance regimen that I introduced was once a week, Diflucan for six months, I'm not curing the patient. I'm controlling the situation. I'm giving her a greater than 95% chance as long as she's taking the Diflucan once a week for six months. I'm giving her a normal life, no itching, no redness, no rawness. You no feel itch- she has to watch her diet. That's no. something that we recommend. No, I know I had a feeling you wouldn't no, feel it, but, no. but you mentioned earlier on too that people eat ice cream. I know a lot of times no, too, I've had women after they've had a lot of drinks of alcohol. If, if, Miss, if Mrs. Smith has noticed Every time she goes and has a few drinks with a beer or she has a massive thing, then I say to her, if you have a, if you recognize that diet is a trigger, then please respect your observation and right. avoid these triggering factors. Right. But, but they're the exception. 90% of the women, there's no link with the, with the, with the diet. If mm-hmm. they happen to have a link, respect it and treat it. Okay. Okay, so the, the point I want to make is that once they go into the Diflucan once a week, it, there's nothing magical about Diflucan. You want to take Monistat twice a week for six months? It's the same. You want to take uh, a high, you'd have to use high-dose Monistat. You want to use Sporanox, you want to use Ketogon, it's nothing. There's nothing magical about Posaconazole or Voriconazole. Well, isn't Posaconazole sidle? Aren't the newer ones... No, they're not sidling. They're not nearly as, no, they are not sidling. And they don't work at a a low pH. Okay. Nobody tells these doctors that. These ID doctors don't know what the pH of the vagina is. So Mm -hmm. why would they know? All right. One last question I want to ask you because we are going to have to wrap up. No, this was was excellent. I I really, you know, it was a nice engaging debate. I just have one question. You know, I do see gentlemen that have been diagnosed with candida in the rectal area or obviously thrush, whole different, are we talking about a whole different approach of podcast? Because you are, like you said, you, you're not a mycologist, but you're a candida specialist. What do you, what's your, what's your no, final so thoughts really, on I that? I really don't have much experience with males. I do know that men, men who have intercourse that is unprotected, non-condom intercourse with women who are prone to recurring yeast infections, yeah, like Valentinus or something. They, yeah. they can get two things. They can get a true Valentinus, where if you actually, if you look under, especially in uncircumcised males, but if you take a swab, you can actually see the yeast. And the way you treat them is you use the monastate on the male's penis. There are other men, I have men who phone me and they say, you know, my, my wife, you're treating her for recurrent yeast infections? I said, yes. She said, and I said, she's been on fluconazole for all of several months and she's done wonderfully. She stopped a few months ago and I think it's back. I said, oh, my God. Well, send her to see me. Um, she, she probably has her yeast back again. So how did you know? Is she symptoms? She says, no, no, I'm symptomatic. Mm-hmm. In other words, the man. <laughs> of course, said, that's why he called. <laughs> that's why he called. Yeah. He's symptomatic. And when you see him, you find he's culture negative. Why? So what is happening? There are two mechanisms of balanitis in the males. There's true cellulitis, a skin infection that yeah. occurs, and there's a hypersensitivity reaction that men get. And what happens, he doesn't need to be treated with anti-yeast medication. All you have to do to cure him is to cure his wife. And as soon as his wife is fine, without medication, he's going to be fine. Interesting. That's an interesting way to to wrap things up. Well, so just to summarize this engaging podcast with Dr. Sobel, who I wanted to speak to for a long time, we're finding out that chronic vaginitis is a complex and, of course, disheartening condition for many women. I think the, the good news and what the takeaway from this podcast is make sure, especially in these recurrent cases, that you get an accurate diagnosis because too often women are probably self-treating and not getting that definitive diagnosis, which would be so helpful and important. Dr. Sol, I think, also really pioneered the, the uh, approach of a longer duration of treatment You know, because so many women, again, that I see and that I'm sure he sees seem to get... A sh- too short a course and too many relapses. So this has to, you know, slightly, I would call a more aggressive 
approach. And um, I don't know, I probably have my disagreements with Dr. Sobel, but I, I do believe that external factors or triggers, as he likes to say, through diet um, and the use of antibiotics and certain medications, I believe make patients more prone to any illness, but specifically even with chronic vaginitis. So Dr. Sobel, I appreciate you taking your time uh, during this uh so we we just talked about recurrent candida and candida. Yeah, I know we didn't we didn't even get a chance to the bacterial vaginosis. We have we to know, come back to got, that one. We, you know, remember this: that yes. for, for every ten women that I see for recurring vaginitis, chronic yes. and recurring vaginitis, probably only thirty to forty percent have infections. The other more than half have other causes of this identical symptoms. So what the women need to demand from their doctors, they want and need a diagnosis. Okay. I think we're going to leave it at that because I think that's so important. Get that diagnosis and hopefully you'll get better. So again, thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some more great podcasts coming up in the next few weeks on COVID testing, the real, you know, the real deal about what to get since so many of us want to travel. And uh, we also have another one coming up in a few weeks on the end of food allergy with uh, Dr. Carrie Nidow. So anyway, thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Sobel. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.